Hello and welcome to Hamsa Holistic Healing and Ayurveda Podcast. I'm your host, Sherry, and I welcome you to episode number 34, where I welcome back Ayurvedic doctor, Mary Alice Quinn, as we talk about the critical role the gallbladder plays in our health, what happens when the gallbladder becomes diseased, and how we can heal our gallbladder. Dr. Mary Alice will give us lots of tips on how to keep our gallbladders healthy and free of sludge. Coming up next. Hello and welcome to Hamsa Holistic Healing and Ayurveda Podcast. I'm your host, Sherry, and it is my deepest desire to journey with you down the path to better health, mind, body, and spirit through the practice of mindfulness and spiritual awakening. Here in this sacred space, we will examine how the practice of higher consciousness and self-awareness can actually lead us to an optimal state of physical and spiritual health. We will talk about the various ways to increase our awareness and support one another along this beautiful journey. Thank you for being here and welcome. Hello and welcome to Hamsa Holistic Healing and Ayurveda Podcast. I'm your host, Sherry, and I welcome you. I'm here today speaking with Mary Alice Quinn. Mary Alice is a National Ayurvedic Medical Association peer-reviewed Ayurvedic doctor and clinical herbalist, serving clients both nationally and internationally since 2004. She is a senior instructor for the California College of Ayurveda and the International Integrative Educational Institute's professional training programs. She currently resides in Sacramento, California, where she has an active private practice blending Ayurvedic nutritional therapies and daily rhythms, as well as personalized herbal remedies and body therapies to assist her clients in achieving and maintaining healthy, satisfying, and balanced lives. She was also my instructor for my Ayurvedic health counseling program through the California College of Ayurveda. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Mary Alice. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks, Sherry. Thank you so much for uh, having me back. I'm excited to be here. Today, we're talking about the gallbladder, which is a very important topic because gallbladder removal surgery is one of the most common surgeries today. Mm, That's right. Right. It really tells us there is a very serious issue going on with gallbladder disease. And so that being said, there's so much information that we'll probably be sharing today. So it's best that we dive right in and- Mm. What, you know, what is the gallbladder? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, we got to start with uh, understanding what it is exactly that we're talking about so that we can have a greater appreciation for um, this uh, organ, which provides us a lot of benefit, not the organ itself, but what it contains. So you're right. I mean, when we talk about gallbladder disease, we see it with the statistics the removal of the gallbladder, which is called a cholecystectomy, is one of the most common medical procedures that's done here in the U.S. That tells us there's a growing concern and rates are not decreasing. In fact, we'll see 1.2 million gallbladders are removed annually. Oh. Right. So I try to visualize what 1.2 million people look like lined up. Oh right? my goodness. And then you times that by a decade. Now you've got 10 million plus people with their gallbladders removed, right? And I like to think that we are perfectly designed and or evolved um, to have every 
piece in place, right? So if we can do our best to save these gallbladders, I think that uh, ultimately people will live a life of more ease. Yeah. The most common reasons for gallbladder removal, let me just mention, is if the gallbladder becomes inflamed or infected, Mm -hmm. we see gallstones can be a problem, of course. And we'll also talk about another type of issue with bile, which is bile sludge. Mm -hmm. Um, And either gallstones or bile sludge can cause gallbladder attacks. They can be a medical emergency or they can at least feel like a medical emergency. Right. Right. So those are the typical uh, reasons why we might see a gallbladder being removed in the first place. Hmm. So if we just define some of these terms before we talk about um, where the gallbladder is and what it does, cholelithiasis is the medical term for gallstones, right? So the formation of stones in the gallbladder is called cholelithiasis. If we um, look at the word cholecyst, cholecyst is the name for the gallbladder in medical terms. Coley means bile and cyst means bag, right? So it's basically a bile bag. Right. Um, and I mentioned cholecystectomy is the surgical removal of the gallbladder. Mm-hmm. So um, the gallbladder itself, it's actually quite small. It's a pear-shaped organ. It's hollow. It's on the right side of your abdomen. It's just beneath your liver. So if you feel your rib cage on the right side of your body, right underneath your rib cage is your liver. And tucked into the right lobe of your liver is that gallbladder. This is uh, what we call the right upper quadrant in medical terms. Okay. It's only about seven to 10 centimeters long and about four centimeters in diameter. So, you know, again, it's a pretty modest organ. Right, right. The main function of the gallbladder is to store bile. Bile is a liquid that's produced by your liver, right? Your liver makes bile. And the gallbladder only holds about 30 to 60 milliliters of bile. Um, So it's only, you know, a couple of tablespoons of bile that the gallbladder holds, but it's highly concentrated in the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. So water is actually absorbed through the gallbladder wall. The bile that's in the gallbladder is about five to 10 times more concentrated than the bile that's coming straight from the liver. Wow. Right. So if we think in terms of the chemistry of the bile in the gallbladder, about 90% of the water in bile is absorbed back into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. That makes that remaining bile really concentrated. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Now we're going to discuss that bile plays a big role in fat digestion. That's kind of its main claim to fame. There's a lot of other functions of bile that I want to mention so that we have a more complete appreciation for this substance. Right. Now, once upon a time, we needed the ability to digest large amounts of fat at one time. If you were a hunter-gatherer and uh, you were roaming around the savanna, you caught some wild game, the fatty organs of those animals would be the first to spoil. So our hunter ancestors, they would have to eat those fatty parts like the brain and the eyes first. Okay. You can imagine that that's going to require some concentrated bile. Yeah. In order to, to digest that. Breaking down those eyeballs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, one might argue, well, we don't eat like that anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So why do we need a gallbladder to concentrate all of this bile? But it's important to note that the chemistry and the composition of the bile that's coming straight from the liver and that which is stored in the gallbladder, they're not the same. Which I did not know that. So that's a very yes. interesting fact. I did not know that. Um, And of course, bile plays 
some really important roles in overall health. So bile is really the star of the show here, yeah. right? And we, we kind of peel back the curtain of the gallbladder and talk about bile. This is really going to help to illustrate the importance of the gallbladder itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so bile plays a role in three critical functions. We're going to break it down into digestion and assimilation and detoxification. Okay. Right. And so again, most people, when they think about bile, they think about its ability to help us process fat. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's only a part of the story, right? That's digestion, but we also have elimination, I'm sorry, uh, assimilation uh-huh. and detoxification. So we'll get some details on that. So first, when it comes to digestion, bile's main role is to emulsify fat. So your gallbladder is stimulated to release that bile. The gallbladder will squeeze the bile out into the duodenum, which is the first portion of the small intestine, Mm -hmm. when you consume fats, right? So anything that you eat, you're going to secrete some bile, but the more fat that you consume at any one meal, the more your gallbladder is going to be stimulated to release the bile into the small intestine. Okay. Another thing I did, didn't realize that it was contingent on the fat content of the, the food that's being consumed. Exactly. The same that's amount. right. I know that. Okay. And you're right. It's proportionate to the concentration of fat that's okay. coming in. Right. Now bile doesn't technically digest fats. Bile breaks fats down into smaller globules okay. so that your enzyme lipase can actually digest it. Okay. Right. So lipase will actually break those molecules into fatty acids and glycerol. So essentially bile's role is to increase the surface area of those fat globules so that you have more complete digestion of those fats. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So that's its main action. But in terms of digestion, I also want to mention something that we don't hear much about, uh, which is that bile acts like a buffer for stomach acids, which are going to enter into the small intestine. Mm. Right. So if we backtrack a little bit, first off, note that I mentioned that the gallbladder secretes that bile into the small intestine. Right. Right. And what's happening in the stomach is happening prior to what happens in the small intestine. Okay. Right. But yet our body is so intelligent. Think about digestion as a, a factory. Um, and rather than an assembly line, it's a disassembly line. Um, uh, And so every process that happens in order to disassemble our nutrients so that we can absorb those nutrients and discard our waste is dependent upon what happened prior, right? The previous step, right? Right. So what happens in your small intestine with that bile and the efficiency of breaking down those fats? And in fact, all of your other nutrients, carbohydrates and proteins is going to be dependent upon what is happening within the stomach, Right. So without sufficient bile secretion, the stomach actually will not produce as much acid. You can imagine the intelligence of the body, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That there is a way for our body to detect if it's essentially safe for the stomach acids to move down into the small intestine. Right. Although the bile in the gallbladder is slightly more acidic than the bile coming from the liver, it still creates a little bit of an alkaline bath to help buffer those stomach acids that will eventually make their way from the stomach down into the small intestine. So without that sufficient bile secretion, the stomach's not going to produce as much acid. What's the problem with that? Why do we care if the stomach doesn't produce as much acid? 
when the food's not breaking down. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right. That's going to compromise our ability to digest and absorb all kinds of nutrients. Right. Right. And low stomach acid counterintuitively presents with symptoms that are very similar to high stomach acid. So um, low stomach acid is a condition we call hypochlorhydria, low stomach acid production that presents as heartburn, right? So people can get heartburn and indigestion when they have low stomach acid. Of course, low stomach acid also increases our susceptibility to infectious organisms, right? Mm -hmm. Think H. pylori infection Mm -hmm. in the stomach, which can lead to ulceration. And then of course, if we're not digesting our food, further up in the stomach um, and then down into the small intestine, we're going to have malabsorption of nutrients, Mm. right? So that bile acting as a buffer uh, for stomach acids is really important. That's all in the context of digestion. Right. Okay. Now, when it comes to assimilation, when we talk about assimilation, it's all about absorption of nutrients into the body, Mm -hmm. right? So one thing that we don't often hear about is that bile stimulates peristalsis, lower down in the gut, lower down in the intestines. Peristalsis are those wave-like contractions. Never did not know that either. Right. And that's really critical. Yeah, because that that means that bile is important for proper motility of the intestines. Yeah. Right. The intestines are responsible for moving those substances that we've consumed down, absorbing those nutrients, and then discarding that waste. Right. So the Motility of the intestines is important for absorption of nutrients and removal of waste. So in fact, an often overlooked cause of constipation is bile congestion. Wow. We don't have that signal for motility. We have slow motility and that can lead to constipation. It's essentially a jam up, like a traffic jam. Exactly. That's right. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah. Everything slows down. Yeah. Right. And so this isn't the dry type constipation that we see very often with vata imbalances. Mm -hmm. Um, This is more of a kappa type constipation, which is related to slow motility. Mm -hmm. And bile is really a big factor, right? Or lack of bile is a factor. Yeah. Just as a side note, we also see motility issues are a factor in SIBO. That's small intestine bacterial overgrowth where microbes that should normally be inhabited within the large intestine will start to migrate up into the small intestine because you don't have that motility that's keeping things flowing in one direction. Exactly. Yeah. So it starts backing up the other way. Yes, exactly. And you know, those microbes will start to feed on your nutrients if they make their way up into the small intestine where the vast majority of your nutrients are being absorbed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they start to cause a whole host of other symptoms, gas and bloating and all kinds of difficulty digesting certain foods. All right. So we don't want any of that. Right. Now, also in terms of assimilation, bile acids are important for the absorption of fatty acids and fat soluble vitamins. Mm-hmm. Right. So we need bile in order to absorb fat and to absorb fat soluble vitamins, which are vitamin A and D and E and K, they all require bile acids for absorption. Right. So you can imagine if you have issues with the release of bile, because either your gallbladder is building up with stones, or you have this bile sludge, 
which is where the bile becomes thick and viscous and it doesn't really flow very easily. Right. That might lead to or contribute to all kinds of nutritional deficiencies. Sure. Right. When it comes to vitamin A, we need that for a proper immune function. It is heavily involved in the protection of your mucous membranes and the health of your skin, your eyes, your liver. Vitamin D, we know, of course, is really important for immune function as well, but it regulates inflammation. It's important for proper bone formation, cancer protection. Uh, When we talk about vitamin E, that's an antioxidant, right? That protects your tissues from free radical damage. And vitamin K, that is involved in blood clotting, also bone development and uh, cardiovascular health. Right. So my point is, is that these are really critical nutrients and we need to have proper absorption of them. Fat as well. So a lot of people might think, well, I don't want to absorb fat, (laughs) but fat is one of the underemphasized and even underestimated sources of fuel for the body, right? We're all really highly focused on carbohydrates, right? Quick energy into the body, proteins, right? We're constantly talking about getting enough protein, Fats, remember, were demonized for a very long time. So a lot of people started to try to remove fat from their diet altogether um, or eat everything low fat. And fats are our most stable source of fuel. So those bile acids, they help to deliver those fatty acids into the body for stable energy production. That means you're going to have more stable blood sugar. You're going to have a more stable mood and more stable energy throughout the day when you are using fat as a fuel source. And we're talking about healthy fats. Exactly. Which we're going to talk a lot about healthy fats versus unhealthy fats because they play a big role in gallbladder health for sure. Sure. Um, So that's digestion and assimilation. We also have detoxification. Um, And this is my favorite function of bile because we are in uh, grave danger in modern times of becoming overloaded with uh, toxic chemicals that are really affecting us on so many levels. And uh, we know that gallbladder issues are a major contributor to the buildup of fat-soluble toxins, which those toxins can get stored for decades in our fatty tissue, um, including the brain, right? We mentioned that the brain is primarily made up of fats. Right. So bile carries toxic waste out of the body right? So these are metabolites from your normal body processes, right? I'm not talking about snake venom. I'm talking about, you know, just the normal things that your body produces as waste that is going to be uh, filtered by the liver, right? So these are metabolites. These are the byproducts of any drugs that a person is taking, uh, pesticides, even our own native hormones. These are all the quote unquote toxic waste that bile is going to carry out of the body. So your liver is filtering your blood of all of these unwanted substances. Then it's excreted with the bile stored in the gallbladder. And then the bile is going to be squirted into the small intestine. And finally, those substances should be carried out with the stool. Mm -hmm. That's detoxification, right? And I say should be carried out with the stool because there's actually one other player here that I want to mention, which is so critical And I'm wondering if any of the listeners might be guessing what this is. We need one more thing in order to make sure that the stool is able to carry out toxic waste from the body. Do you have any idea what that might be, Sherry? I do not. 
It is fiber. Fiber, if there's enough fiber to enrobe and sweep those substances out with the stool, we get proper detoxification on a daily basis. Right. So, so my mind is going just quickly about mm-hmm. why it's important to examine our stool mm-hmm. to see what it's doing after elimination. Is it floating? Is it? Yes. Is it, it has a certain odor or whatever, but I personally, and I don't know how this ties in, but I, I think it does. If I eat a lot of cooked organic, you know, freshly cooked beets, Mm -hmm. I will, that are very high in fiber. I can tell a difference in my, my stool. Yes. And I'm always thinking I'm doing something good for my pancreas, liver and gallbladder when I'm eating beets. Mm, absolutely. And that's going to tie in in a very strong way um, okay. because we're going to see that that is actually a therapeutic food for the liver and the gallbladder. Okay. Right? It's not just because it's high in nutrients, which it is. And it's not just because it's high in fiber, which it is. Okay. It actually has some benefit in terms of supporting the liver and the bile, which we definitely are going to touch on. Okay. So that's a great observation. And also your mention of observing uh, your waist, right? Observing your bowel movements uh, is also really critical because some of the symptoms that we're going to talk about will relate to the quality and consistency of our bowel movements. Okay. So back to fiber, right? So the bile is carrying these toxins that have been removed by the liver from the blood, uh, of course, as well as toxins that are present there in the digestive tract. Bile is carrying all of that out of the body. Bile binds to fat-soluble toxins. Mm -hmm. Of course, without proper bile production in the first place, and then bile flow, along with regular bowel movements, most of these toxic byproducts will get reabsorbed and recirculated back into the bloodstream. Now, remember when we mentioned these toxic byproducts, this also includes hormones. So we just wanted to make a quick side note. You know, we often are talking a lot about hormonal balance, right? That's definitely something that's in the the zeitgeist, right? We're all about hormone balance. And we're failing to recognize that hormone balance is primarily a function of the liver, the gallbladder, and elimination. And so your liver's job is to maintain proper blood chemistry, which includes proper balance of hormones. Uh, And so if we don't have proper bile flow, which is going to carry that toxic waste out of the body, and we don't have proper bowel movements, then not only are we at risk of reabsorbing and recirculating those toxins, but also hormones, right? Which can lead very easily to hormonal imbalances. Hmm. The liver is very busy and the bile. Oh my word. (laughs) I I mean, this is a huge education today. I had no idea the bile is critical. I mean, this is like the broad strokes especially if we tie in the liver, right? And the hundreds of functions that the liver is doing, right? Your liver is filtering over a liter of blood every minute. Unbelievable. Right? That's about 22 gallons of blood an hour and 250 gallons of blood in a 24 hour period of time. That's amazing. That's what your liver is busy doing right now. Yeah. Now, I just want to mention most of the bile is naturally reabsorbed. In the lower end of the small intestine, it's called the ileum. The body recycles and reuses this precious resource. It's really only about 5% 
of bile that eventually is excreted out with the stool, but that's a super important 5%, right? Because that's carrying out all of those fat soluble toxins, right? right? All the heavy metals, excess hormones, plastics, you name it. Wow. Right. So that it's not stored in our fat and more importantly, it's not stored in our brain. Mm, Yeah. Which probably is going to open the door to like dementia, Alzheimer's, or I mean, I'm going in all these places. I'm trying to stay still. I know. I know. It's <laughs> right. It's it's the weaving together of all of these systems and all of the effects which are so intimately connected. Right. Oh my goodness. Um, just as a side note, because this will tie into some of the observations we see with symptoms or signs and symptoms. Uh, bile also is what imparts color to the stool. Okay. Right. So the fact that our stool is that um kind of medium brown color, yep. that is from bile. It's actually a bile pigment that comes from bilirubin and bilirubin comes from your old red blood cells. So your red blood cells, um, when they reach their uh, final stage of life, they will be broken down and the bilirubin will be recycled to use in the production of bile. Okay. So let me mention the um, kind of the, the general signs and symptoms of gallbladder disease. How do we know that we might suspect that a person has gallbladder disease? Right. The first one is abdominal distension and bloating. That's really typical, um, especially within 30 minutes of eating. So it happens pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. This is where people, um, especially it's worse with fatty foods, they'll feel full really quickly and they'll just kind of feel bloated and uncomfortable. Okay. If a person has a full-blown gallbladder attack, that often occurs at night, very common in the pit time of night Mm -hmm. from about 10 p.m. till midnight. That's peak time in the ER for people rushing in with symptoms of a gallbladder attack, um, which that's going to tie into the Ayurvedic understanding of gallstones. Uh, We also see a lot of belching, so chronic belching. Um, This is not necessarily just related to when you eat. This can be away from meals. And of course, again, that belching is going to be worse with more fat consumption. Okay. We're going to see some stools that are really foul smelling and they're pale in color, Mm -hmm. Um, especially the more bile that is not coming out of the gallbladder. We're going to lack those bile pigments. So you might see pale stools that are kind of more whitish or clay colored and fatty stools that float, you might actually see a little bit of sheen on the toilet water, right? See some of that uh, oily quality. Yep. We also might see chronic itching. And that's interesting because we mentioned that those bile salts will get reabsorbed. But if you don't have proper flow of bile out of the gallbladder, then all of those bile salts that are being reabsorbed back into the bloodstream can start to back up. And that can cause some chronic itching And this is especially going to affect mucous membranes. The anus might itch, right? So anal itching is a sign of gallbladder disease. And if a person does have actual gallstones, then we're going to see abdominal pain. Usually that's going to be in the right side of the abdomen, but it can radiate to the right shoulder and even back in the shoulder blade, Mm -hmm. This is what medicine calls referred pain, right? Where it shows up on the surface of the body in a place that is not necessarily directly related to the location of the organ, mm-hmm. right? Because we said, yeah, the gallbladder is on the right side, but we're talking about shoulder pain, right? right. So that pain can radiate to that area. Mm-hmm. Now, 
The good news is that most of the time gallstones, if they remain in the gallbladder, they don't usually cause any pain or discomfort. That pain is typically from a stone that is obstructing the flow of bile, right? So it's obstructing a bile duct. Okay, right. Now we do see, especially with a gallbladder attack, there'll be some other symptoms, some extra intestinal symptoms like shaking and fatigue, nausea and or vomiting, anxiety, headaches, right? Mm -hmm. And this can be kind of a low grade kind of constant sense or with a gallbladder attack, it's kind of coming on all at once. And it feels very much like a medical emergency, which is why people take themselves or are taken to the ER And then they're scheduled for gallbladder removal in a couple of days because they never want to go through that again. Right, right. Right. And from the conventional medical perspective, this is just an auxiliary organ. It's just storing the bile. It's not that big of a deal. And we often see that even if they try to treat it medically, that the gallstones come back again. So from their perspective, we might as well just remove it altogether. Right. So we're going to focus on gallstones and and I'll tell you that everything that we mention in terms of diet and treatment is going to apply to bile sludge as well. Bile sludge is actually a medical term, by the way, (laughs) it sounds like kind of like, you know, just a poetic way of talking about thick bile, but that is the medical term for bile that's not fluid and therefore is not flowing as readily. Yeah, it does have a informal kind of sound to it. but <laughs> Totally. <laughs> you can picture the sludge, not that's right. That's you know, right. Dumping into your stomach when it needs to be dumped, you know? Yeah. So, you know, bile needs to be fluid in order for it to first and foremost, leave the gallbladder efficiently. Mm-hmm. Right. But then mix with the contents of the small intestine. And so that fluidity of the bile is really key. Bile is kind of a yellowish greenish liquid. It's made up of primarily cholesterol bile salts, bile pigments, like the bilirubin we mentioned, phospholipids, uh, most notably phosphatidylcholine, what's also called lecithin, and water, right? So that's basically all that it's made up of, cholesterol, bile salts, and water. Mm -hmm. Now, if bile becomes super saturated with cholesterol, it can mix with other metabolites like calcium, or bilirubin or uric acid and start to form into a semi-solid mass or a stone. Now these stones, they're kind of honeycomb shaped. They're not round. Like you might think of a stone. They have faceted sides because they tend to get compressed together in the small space of the gallbladder. Okay. And they're a little malleable, right? Cause they're made up of cholesterol. So they're not hard like a stone. So that means that they have a little bit of give to their shape, which is why they tend to kind of all sit nestled together in the gallbladder. Mm. Now, I just want to mention a note on cholesterol, because this is going to help us to understand a little bit about the biochemistry of why we might develop gallstones. I mentioned that bile is primarily made up of cholesterol. Cholesterol is insoluble. Remember, it's a fatty substance. So fat and water don't mix right? Mm -hmm. Cholesterol doesn't dissolve in its solution. It doesn't dissolve freely in bile. It has to be emulsified. It has to be broken up by the bile salts in order to remain incorporated into the bile. Okay. Now bile normally contains large amounts of cholesterol. That's not really an abnormal feature, Mm -hmm. right? But that cholesterol usually remains dissolved within the bile because you have plenty of bile salts and you have just enough cholesterol. 
But if the bile becomes oversaturated with cholesterol, either because there's too much cholesterol or there's too few bile salts, then that cholesterol becomes insoluble. It starts to mix with the other metabolic substances that are present within the bile, and then it precipitates into this stone. Okay. So there's four major categories of gallstones. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's pure cholesterol stones, which is actually not correlated with blood serum levels of cholesterol. That type of gallstone is very uncommon here in the U.S., There's also pure pigment stones, which are calcium bilirubinate. Those are also very uncommon here in the U.S., but what's most common are what are called mixed stones, right? About 80% of those with gallstones are going to have uh, these mixed stones that contain cholesterol and varying amounts of these other substances like the bile salts, the bile pigments, uh, inorganic salts of calcium. That's what most people's gallstones will be made up of. And then there are mineral stones. That's the fourth type. And those are composed mostly of minerals, primarily calcium salts. That's like the remaining 20%. Okay. So if we look at the formation of gallstones, it happens in three basic stages. You have an increase in the concentration of some bile component. It's cholesterol, it's calcium, it's bilirubin, uric acid. Then you have the formation of that mass right? It settles in the gallbladder and starts to precipitate into a solid stone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have the enlargement of that gallstone through layers of matter that accumulates over time. Okay. Now, what's helpful is that modern medicine has identified risk factors for people that most commonly develop gallstones. These are referred to as the four F's in modern medicine. Um, This is a way for medical students to remember easily those individuals who are at higher risk for developing gallstones. I'm going to mention one other F uh, that's not really a risk factor, but it's a a feature of the condition that's helpful. So the first F is fat, being overweight uh, or obese, having a body mass index above 30 puts you at greater risk for developing gallstones. Okay. Now, we also see related to body composition, um, those who have type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance and elevated blood triglycerides, especially anything above 150, that also puts you at greater risk for developing gallstones. And primarily, this is a metabolic issue, right? Obesity leads to more cholesterol being manufactured in the liver, and therefore you have increased secretion of cholesterol in the bile. Okay. Now, one other factor with fat that's interesting to note is that fat tissue increases the amount of estrogen that's produced. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're going to see why estrogen is a major factor with gallstones as well. But staying on fat, fat cells make estrogen and estrogen encourages more fatty tissue growth. Okay. All right. So you've got a negative feedback loop there. Yep. Right. You got the fat cells that make more estrogen and the more estrogen you have, the more tendency you have to gain weight. Right. Right. If we bring in the Ayurvedic perspective, another risk factor would be having a kapha prakriti, mm-hmm. right? Being more dominant in kapha in your constitution or having a kapha imbalance yeah. that will leave you more susceptible to gallstones. Yes. Now, one clinical note that I want to mention, most clients that I've worked with with gallbladder issues were not overweight. Ah, right. And I want to mention that because I think that we get this impression that, oh, that's a condition for those kind of people. Right. right. And so we think, well, this is not really an issue for me because I'm not overweight. 
And I'll tell you that, unfortunately, that tide has been shifting for quite a while, right? I see people of normal weight that have blood sugar dysregulation, insulin resistance. And of course, we see people who are not overweight that are also developing this bile sludge and gallstones. Are you thinking the evidence pointing to toxicity in our diet? That is a factor, right, which overburdens the liver and also means that we have that much more toxins to eliminate with the bile. But I primarily see it as an influence of modern diet. Yeah, right. An influence of modern diet and lifestyle, which plays a role, right? Our food industry that really is um, a major contributing factor. Yeah, right. So when we talk a little bit more about what are some of the Uh, ways in which we are more susceptible to to developing gallstones and we talk about treatment, then we'll get into the details of dietary factors. Okay. Staying on the four Fs, right? We said fat is the first one. I know it's a very non-PC term, right? But just a way of easily remembering. Yeah. Um, We also have female. Yep. Right. So that's the next F. Um, (laughs) We see gallstones are about two to four times more common in women. Yep. It's natural for women to synthesize more cholesterol than males, because remember, all of our steroid hormones are made from cholesterol. Right, right. Um, But also in terms of being female, the issue is with estrogen, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The issue with estrogen in excess is that estrogen suppresses those bile acids. Remember, we need those bile acids to keep cholesterol dissolved within the, the solution. Right. So in other words, we can say that estrogen increases the saturation of cholesterol in the bile by suppressing those bile acids. Okay. The next F is fertile. And it's not about a person's ability to conceive or not. It's all about estrogen exposure. Okay. Right. So we naturally are going to have elevated estrogen levels during our fertile years from menarche to menopause. Mm -hmm. Right. And just as a side note, There's no one hormone called estrogen. It's actually a a group or a family called estrogens. Okay. Right. And so we are producing estradiol, which is our main form of estrogen from menarche to menopause. Mm -hmm. We also obviously have elevated estrogen in pregnancy. That's called estriol. Mm -hmm. And we might have additional exposure through oral contraceptives, right? Birth control pills. We also might be exposed to estrogen from hormone replacement therapy, right? HRT. And we also have a lot of estrogen mimicking compounds in our environment, Mm. right? So that does tie into toxicity um, that you were mentioning, right? We have fat, we have female, we have fertile and 40. That's the last F. The average age of presentation of gallbladder disease is between 40 to 50 years old. Okay. Now, part of this is because that typically marks the decline in our ability to produce these enzymes that manufacture bile. Okay. Of course, if we are not producing those bile acids, then we have a increase in cholesterol saturation in the bile. Mm -hmm. Now, again, to tie in Ayurveda, this would be the pitta time of life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So in the pit, the time of life, we're going to be more prone to developing gallstones. And we'll see that Ayurveda considers this a pitta type disease that can involve either pitta and or kappa imbalances. It's kind of pitta winding down, though. It's true. That's right. right. 
Yeah, remember we were mentioning the stages in which these gallstones develop. They develop over time. They don't develop overnight, right? Yeah. So by the time somebody is 40 to 50 years old, that's just when the symptoms start exactly. to um, it's present. Been, it's been percolating for a while. A exactly. While. That's, that's right. That's you got it. Um, now that bonus F is farty. <laughs> if, <laughs> if you produce a lot of abdominal gas, chronic belching, right? That's a very common feature of gallbladder disease. Now, of course, it's not the only cause. There are many other potential causes for indigestion, but abdominal gas and chronic belching is really common with gallbladder disease. Mm -hmm. I do want to mention there are a couple of other susceptibilities for gallstones. People who fast or practice extreme calorie restriction, this would include those with eating disorders, they are at higher risk. Because if you are on a very low calorie diet, that's going to interfere with bile acid production, right? And that will cause a higher concentration of cholesterol in the bile. Okay. We also see that there is a lack of stimulation for the gallbladder. That bile will start to stagnate within the gallbladder if you're not exercising the gallbladder, right? right? Because you are practicing extreme calorie restriction. Okay. Also people who lose weight really quickly, yeah. right? rapid weight loss, that will cause the body to metabolize fat more quickly. Mm -hmm. And then the liver is going to secrete the extra cholesterol from that breakdown into the bile. Okay. Right. So we, we said that obesity is a risk, risk factor. We want to lose weight, but we have to do it properly, right? We have to do it steadily. We don't want to take any extreme measures because that actually increases our risk for gallbladder complications. Mine goes, goes to gastric surgery, you know, gastric bypass mm. or sleeve or. Yes. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because interestingly enough, if you look at the statistics, those who undergo gastric bypass surgery, any kind of bariatric surgery, especially for weight loss, there is a large percentage of those patients that end up having to have cholecystectomy, removal of their gallbladder within several months. Yeah, makes sense. Very, very common. Yeah, definitely. I could see that. Um, now, we also see hereditary can play a factor. Native Americans and Mexican Americans do have higher rates of gallstone production. If you have a family history, right, that's going to leave you more susceptible. And that might be a combination of nature and nurture in terms of, you know, you might be eating the same foods uh, within a family or a lineage. And also, if you take cholesterol lowering drugs, that can lead to greater susceptibility. Sure. Now, of all the risk factors and susceptibilities, the one that we have the most control over, of course, is diet. So I also want to mention, and this is clearly articulated in the, in the research, it's a low fiber diet, mm -hmm. high in refined carbohydrates mm -hmm. and high in hydrogenated oils. Mm -hmm. That's a major risk factor. Yeah. Um, so fiber sequesters cholesterol in the gut and sweeps it out with the stool, mm -hmm. right? So number one, that fiber is going to help balance cholesterol levels, right? We also mentioned how important it is that that fiber is there to enrobe the toxins that are coming from the bile and sweeping those out with the stool. Right. 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 And then when it comes to refined carbohydrates and hydrogenated oils, amongst many other negative impacts, that leads to a reduction in the synthesis of those bile acids. Okay. The liver is not going to be able to produce as much bile acids because number one, we don't have as much nutrients in those foods. Right. 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 Refined yeah. carbohydrates, they have all of the nutrients processed out of them. 
Right. They also are not high in fiber, right? And then the hydrogenated oils are actually quite indigestible and very stressful on the liver, right? Yeah. So now the liver is not able to make those bile acids. Therefore, we have a lower bile salt concentration in the gallbladder. Remember, we need those bile salts to keep cholesterol dissolved in the bile. Right. So some of the complications that come up, we see you can have obstruction and inflammation of the gallbladder that can lead to the gallbladder becoming infected. Mm -hmm. That inflammation can spread into the bile ducts. That inflammation can spread into the pancreas. Mm -hmm. And then you might have inflammation and tissue damage in the pancreas. Mm. And that's because all of your pancreatic enzymes are now backing up. Right. right. They are not able to move into the small intestine and digest your food. Hmm. Now, as I mentioned, there's quite a large number of people that do have gallstones today and they're completely asymptomatic. Okay. Right. Many people are found to have gallstones uh, later, let's say on autopsy. They never knew they had them. They passed of other causes that just never was a problem. Right. Right. But the main problem occurs when the gallbladder contractions push a stone into one of the bile ducts. Right. And unfortunately, you never know when and if that's going to happen. Right. No, you can detect gallstones on ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, within our modern medical system, it's not practical to scan every person's gallbladder for gallstones. Right. Right. You know, that's my vision of the future of medicine is that we are working a bit more preventative and, you know, we can do this quick and easy and quite inexpensive scan and find out, is this a problem for you? Right. Before it gets full blown. Exactly. Uh, right. Because there's three primary manifestations of this. You can have a gallstone that gets lodged in the cystic bile duct. That's mm -hmm. the opening from the gallbladder into the common bile duct. So you're still going to have bile coming from the liver right? That's able to enter into the small intestine. That's a different tributary, right? That's a different duct that carries bile from the liver into the small intestine, but you're going to have some painful contractions, right? And that's going to be very, very uncomfortable, if not overtly a medical emergency. Right, right. Uh, the second uh, manifestation is you can have a gallstone that's blocking the common bile duct. Hmm. Um, now the common bile duct is the pathway for the bile coming from the gallbladder and the liver. So now you're not releasing any bile into the small intestine, All right? So you're not going to be digesting your fats. You're going to have uh, steatorrhea, which is fat in the stool. Mm -hmm. um, you might have diarrhea. Um, the stool, when it comes out, it will likely be kind of grayish or palish because you don't have those bile pigments. And we can also see if you're not excreting bile, then that bilirubin that's used to produce bile will start to back up into the bloodstream and that will lead to jaundice. Mm -hmm. right? Jaundice is the yellowing of the eyes and the skin from a backup or a buildup, I should say, of bilirubin. In this case, it's a backup of bile that's okay. causing the bilirubin to back up in the blood. Okay. And the last scenario, which is probably the worst scenario, is if you have a gallstone that blocks the duodenal papilla, which is the opening from the common bile duct into the small intestine. Now, unfortunately, the way that our anatomy is designed, we have the bile coming from the gallbladder, we have the bile coming from the liver, and we have the pancreatic enzymes coming from the pancreas all converging into the same location, mm. right? And so they all converge into the same little opening 
that enters into the small intestine, if you have a gallstone blocking that opening, not only do you not have any bile, you don't have any pancreatic secretions. Jeez. Right. Obviously, that's going to lead to serious malnutrition. You can't digest your food. Mm. And that can lead to acute pancreatitis, right? Acute inflammation and infection of the pancreas. Mm. So let's mention just briefly the Ayurvedic perspective in case that's interesting to anybody listening. This is what uh, Ayurvedic medicine calls uh, pitta type udara roga. Mm -hmm. This is pithodira or a a pitta related abdominal disease. Mm -hmm. Now, although it's classified in the classical text as a pitta type disorder, it often involves imbalances of pitta and kappa. Mm -hmm. Right. So a good way to think about gallstones from an Ayurvedic perspective are that they are a condition of heat and congestion that build up in the gallbladder. Yep. Right. That heat is that pitta, that congestion is that kappa, right? You've got the heat and the congestion building up in the gallbladder. That's also happening in the liver, by the way. Okay. Now we know the factors that increase pitta. And the one that's most important to highlight here are fried foods, uh, excess processed oils, those hydrogenated oils, these are the oils that are found in most all packaged foods, right? Fast food is going to, um, French fries are going to be fried in this oil. Your restaurant foods are going to be cooked in the, these oils. All commercial goods are going to have these oils, right? We should also mention alcohol, which we know is very pitta aggravating. That is toxic to the liver, and that is going to stress the liver. And remember, the liver's doing a lot, right? It's yeah literally hundreds of processes that it's doing all at once. And if it's busy trying to process the alcohol, um, then it's not going to be busy producing beautiful bile. Right. And also that uses up a lot of micronutrients, right. Mm -hmm. In trying to detoxify those metabolites. We also see just in a general sense, in a person's kind of overall way of viewing the world and living, intensity and anger are also things to look at because that overheats the blood and the liver. Those are pitta increasing emotions. Right. Now we see factors that increase kappa as well, uh, very much the same. We have the fry foods, we have uh, poor quality fats, but we can also add in here overeating, right? Overconsumption of food not moving enough, right? Living more of a sedentary lifestyle and all of that leading to weight gain, right? Mm -hmm. Which we said weight gain is a big problem. It's one of the four F's risk factors. Mm. All right. So that takes us through what the gallbladder is. What is it doing for us, right? Mm -hmm. Concentrating that bile. But then we talked a lot about what the bile is doing for us and what the risk factors are for developing things like bile sludge or gallstones in the first place. So now we can talk about treatment. Yeah. Sound good? Sounds great. Well, you know, I really appreciate the Ayurvedic perspective pretty much when it comes to the treatment of all disease, which is to first remove the cause, (laughs) as opposed to just remove the current problem, right? The current problem we have identified is the gallbladder and the medical approach. We're just going to remove the gallbladder. Therefore, problem is solved. Mm. Um, but the Ayurvedic approach whenever possible is to remove the cause of the problem, right? So when it comes to diet, it's really, really important. If you are in the population with these risk factors, let's say you're in your forties, you're a female, Mm -hmm. right? Let's say you're carrying a little bit of extra weight, especially if you're native American, especially if you're Mexican American, these are really important risk factors to pay attention to. If you have a low fiber diet, 
that is not going to work in your favor. So we need to avoid those fried, oily, greasy foods, especially those processed oils, right? Those highly processed, refined oils, those that have been made shelf stable, they are either heat or chemical extracted oils. They're hydrogenated, they're bleached and deodorized. They're basically indigestible. They're pro-inflammatory and they're very congesting to the liver and the gallbladder. Mm. Right. So those are ones that we have to get out of our diet. So look at your food labels. If you read the ingredients, most all packaged foods will contain these oils, Mm -hmm. right? This is canola oil, corn, soy, peanut, safflower, sunflower. Those are polyunsaturated processed oils that is going to inflame your body and congest your liver and gallbladder. Mm -hmm. Now, a side note, they're great for making food shelf stable, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Because no microbes will eat them, right? And so those foods, they don't degrade on the shelf. Mm -hmm. They don't degrade in your cupboard. But you have to remember that the microbes in the foods, if they even exist in those processed foods, right? they're not able to consume those oils. The microbes in your gut won't either. Exactly. The microbes in our gut are highly involved in the processing of fatty acids and the absorption of nutrients into the body. Mm -hmm. Um, We also see another condition, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a real growing concern that we have. And I uh, truly believe that the ubiquitous consumption of these oils is playing a big role in that as well. So instead of choosing those processed oils, you would choose like a very high quality olive oil, a ghee. Would that be right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's really important because we don't want to go fat free either. Right. And this is a really, really important point. Research clearly shows the link between a low fat, no fat diet, extreme diets for weight loss and fasting will increase your risk for gallbladder disease. Right. Now, remember, as fats were demonized in our culture back in the 1960s, it was decided that that was the primary cause of cardiovascular disease, Mm -hmm. and that inspired an entire industry of low-fat, non-fat foods. Not only did our rates of heart disease not go down, right, it's still the number one killer of Americans growing steadily, Mm -hmm. but this way of eating and trying to lose weight set us up for a lot of gallbladder issues. Right. So we need a minimum of 10 grams of fat a day to uh, sufficiently stimulate the contraction and the emptying of the gallbladder. Okay. So we don't want to go fat free. So what we do want to do, you're absolutely right. We want fat in the diet. I mentioned it's a really stable source of fuel for the body. It keeps you from having those spikes of blood sugar. It keeps your energy stable, which keeps your mood stable. So healthy, unprocessed fats are the ones that we want to take. We do want to take them in moderation. We want to have them with each meal, not too much at any one time, Mm -hmm. which is especially true for people that are healing from gallbladder disease and also true for people who've had their gallbladders removed. Okay, exactly. And we want to eat them as close to their natural form as possible, Mm -hmm. right? Quality really matters when it comes to fats. Yes. Uh, Some of our most toxic compounds that we're exposed to are fat soluble, Mm -hmm. right? Environmental pollutants and pesticides and heavy metals and fire retardants and plastics, right? These xenoestrogens are what are called collectively endocrine disrupting chemicals. Mm -hmm. 
these things bioaccumulate in fat tissue. Mm -hmm. So we not only have to have proper detoxification of these, so they don't end up backing up in our blood and stored in our fat in our brain, but we have to reduce our exposure to them in the first place by choosing clean sources of fat. And this is obviously especially true in animal-based fats like meat and dairy, because I mentioned these toxins bioaccumulate mm-hmm. um, in fat tissue. So if we are consuming burgers and steaks from cows that are grazing on uh, GMO corn and soil, which by the way, is not their natural diet, and they're heavily laden with pesticides and herbicides, all of those compounds are going to bioaccumulate in that animal. We eat that animal. We eat that much more of those toxins. Exactly. Mm. Now, while we're talking about diet, I do want to mention there are some foods in the research that are associated with triggering gallbladder attacks. Mm. And so uh, there's not enough research to tell us why, but I'll mention these in case somebody really is dealing with gallstones, gallbladder attacks, then these might be ones that you want to experiment removing for a period of time. I don't think it's a good idea to remove them forever, but just to take some of that pressure off of your body while you incorporate some of the healing foods that we're going to talk about so that we don't trigger a gallbladder attack. Um, The number one is egg. So egg seems to be a big factor in triggering gallbladder attacks, pork and fowl, milk, onion, citrus, corn, beans, nuts, and coffee, the beloved coffee. Wow. (laughs) I'm shocked. Eggs I'm shocked about. And I guess I could say coffee because I enjoy coffee, but I do drink kind coffee with ghee in it, but still I'm, Mm. I'm surprised at those. Yes. We have to uncover why, right? Because I think that that's a really important component and these are not bad foods, right? Beans are loaded with fiber, right? Does it do with heating, a heating quality? Because some of those are quite heating. That is true. That may definitely play a factor, right? In terms of things that may be more pitha or kapha aggravating from an Ayurvedic perspective. But this is coming from modern research. This is completely independent of Ayurvedic uh, wisdom. Right. Now, coffee does induce gallbladder contractions, right? That's one reason why people might develop a dependency on coffee to move their bowels, right? right? Because remember, one of the functions of bile is to stimulate peristalsis, right? So if you are drinking coffee, especially first thing in the morning, when your colon is loaded with waste product on an empty stomach, you're going to initiate gallbladder contractions, which is going to squeeze that bile into your small intestine, which is going to stimulate peristalsis. Okay. So you will find very often that people will need to consume coffee in order to move their bowels. Part of it might be the caffeine, right? Just the stimulating quality on the nervous system, but also it's that bile secretion. Right. Wow. Now let's talk about healing foods. Now I didn't say specifically what I mean by healthy fats. So let me mention, yes, in, in terms of fats that we want to favor, ghee is really at the top of that. It's just the oil from butter. So all of the milk solids have been removed. The water has been cooked off. It is very uh, liquid when it enters into the body. It increases the secretion of fluids in the body. So it keeps things flowing. We like that. It also happens to be the highest source of butyric acid, which feeds healthy microbes. And that also helps to keep a nice 
a healthy gut lining. Yeah. Right. So lots of advantages in terms of that. I also do like olive oil, especially cold pressed, small batch olive oil that's used primarily either cold or room temperature preparations or low heat preparations. It's more of a monounsaturated fat. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have a lot of the health concerns that we see with those polyunsaturated vegetable oils. Um, and then I also like foods that just naturally are rich in these fatty acids like avocados and your nuts and seeds, right? Of course, we want to add fat to any meal that we consume because that's going to keep our blood sugar and our energy more stable. Okay. Now, beyond fat, um, some actual healing foods, the first on my list would be root vegetables. Yeah. Uh, root vegetables are liver cleansers. Um, These are plants that have that big tap root, right? So beets, you mentioned, carrots, radish, parsnips. These all gently encourage bile flow and they support liver function. Wow. Now, of all of these, the beets are the most potent of the root veggies. Mm. They're really rich in these botanical nitrates that actually support the production of nitric oxide. And that is a potent vasodilator that dilates your vessels and actually lowers blood pressure, but it also dilates the bile ducts. And if you dilate the bile ducts, you improve bile flow and that's going to reduce bile congestion, right? It's going to destagnate the bile. Hmm. Now you mentioned Sherry that uh, you noticed the benefit of the fiber that beets provide. And that is true. So that would be my preferred form is whole beet because it provides the additional benefit of the fiber. Yes. Uh, However, beet juice can be considered, it's particularly potent. So if you know you have gallbladder issues, you really want to start low and go slow if you're going to incorporate beet juice because it's just more concentrated, right? Right. No more than about two ounces to start with. You want to mix that with other milder vegetable juices like celery, carrot, just kind of work up over time. Make sure that you don't trigger a gallbladder attack. Okay. That's a good tip. When it comes to beets, you can take them in any way, shape, or form. You can eat them raw. uh, You can cook them. You steam them, roast them. Just get them in your diet. Yeah. They're so Um, good. They're so good. In fact, I used to think that I didn't like beets. And then I met the golden beet, and that really introduced me into the world of beets. And I really like the golden beets, which then was a gateway for me to accept the red beet. And now it's one of my favorite foods. And especially when it comes to the spring and the summer, my favorite preparation is so simple. It's just great. Your beet. If you have a food processor, this works really easily and quickly, but you want to grate your beet and then you're just going to toss it with lemon juice, some grated ginger. And if you want a little bit of like a Dijon mustard, and it's literally, that's it. Um, In fact, I would, even though I do like the taste of salt uh, with food, as most all of us do, because it enhances the flavor, I would encourage you to taste it first and then decide if you need to add salt. Because interestingly enough, this has such a diverse flavor profile that um, you might not even need any additional salt. So complex, you you don't even need the salt. Yes, right? You got a little bit of the sour and the spiciness from the lemon and the ginger. And then those beets are sweet and just, you know, have that bright vibrancy to them. So delicious. Next on our list is globe artichoke. 
right? Artichoke is a wonderful remedy for the liver. It does promote bile flow, which is what we want, but it's also protective and regenerative for the liver, mm -hmm. right? It increases blood flow to the liver and it even is shown to reduce blood fats, right? Those does are- Does have to be, because artichokes are difficult when you're cooking that, can you, can you buy the, the ones in the jar with the oil or no? Well, the problem is going to be what is the oil that it's uh, marinating in? Yeah. Right. Right. Now, if it's like an olive oil, right. That, but um, oftentimes one of the things we have to consider is that they are packaged in a clear jar. And one of the things to note about oils is that they're very sensitive to light and yeah. heat. Yeah. Right. And so you will be oxidizing those fats when they're exposed to light. Yep. So it's, it's all a trade-off, right? Yep. Yep. Now, artichokes can be juiced as well. It's not one that we often think about running through our juicer, but yep. you can juice an artichoke and that'll be an easy way to get it in. I like artichokes, but I agree they're a bit labor intensive. There's not a whole lot of payoff in terms of you know, actual bulk of food. But um, in any case, we know that they are very supportive to liver health. It's good to know. Yeah. Green apples are also a wonderful healing food. They're rich in malic acid. And that helps to thin the bile and also dilates the bile ducts. Nice. Right. So between root vegetables, especially beets, some artichokes, some green apples, we've got some really good foods that will promote that bile flow and also promote the, uh, the actual chemistry of proper bile. Yeah, definitely. And here's a, an Ayurvedic question. Mm -hmm. The ice water, topic of uh -huh. ice water drinking it fast, is that really contributing to sludging up the bile? Well, the problem is that it causes contraction, right? We want things that trigger dilation or opening, yes. right? Contraction is closing down. Dilation is opening up. Mm -hmm. And so we want to open up the blood vessels. We want to open up the lymphatics, right? We want to open up the bile ducts, yeah. Right. And so things that are cold, especially coming into the core of the body are going to be more constricting and contracting. I wouldn't say that it's the biggest fish to fry. Mm -hmm. Right. But it, it can definitely be a factor. We know that it compromises digestion. And remember, it's a factory line. And what's happening within the stomach is going to affect what happens in the small intestine and vice versa. Yeah. OK, fair enough. Now, bitters in general, from an Ayurvedic perspective, they're pitta and kapha pacifying, they're cleansing in nature, they purify the blood, they support liver detoxification, they encourage bile flow, and the most bitter of foods is bitter melon. I don't know if you've ever uh, crossed paths with the bitter melon. No. Not everybody loves it. It's very common in Indian cuisine and Asian cuisine, um, but it's really bitter. That can be juiced as well, by the way. Okay. Bitter melon, as a side note, is also really good for lowering blood sugar, right? So if people simultaneously are having gallbladder issues and blood sugar issues, bitter melon can be a really important food to incorporate. Is it really, really bitter? It's really bitter. So I mean, really. Juicing, could you mix it with something else to make it? Definitely. Better? Although there are plenty of Indian style dishes that literally just, you know, if you know how to cook up a zucchini, that's basically how you would cook up a bitter melon. But there's always some fats and some spices that are added to that, maybe other vegetables. There's definitely a way that you can do it that you would like it. But I would say most people, it's going to be too bitter to consume as a part of your diet that you love. You might think of it more as a medicinal kind okay. of a food, in which case the easiest and fastest way to get in 
that bitter melon is going to be uh, juice. Okay. Fair enough. Yep. Now fiber, right? Of course, we can't forget the fiber. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors, they consumed over 100 grams of fiber a day, right? What we see with quote-unquote healthy adults, they're eating on average maybe about 30 grams, Mm. right? That's a pretty wide difference. Yeah, definitely. Now, I mentioned those are healthy adults, right? So most Americans get less than 10 grams of fiber a day, right? There's no fiber in meat. There's no fiber in processed grains, There's no fiber in your oil. There's no fiber in your dairy. Mm. So where is that fiber coming from? (laughs) It's your plants. Yeah. And the average American eats less than one serving of produce a day. Mm. And they actually count potato and ketchup, things like that. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. So we have to get more plant foods. We have to get these root vegetables, these beets, these green apples, the artichokes, Burdock root is another medicinal food that actually tastes really good. So you can go to most grocery stores now and buy burdock root. Uh, It's called gobo if you go into an Asian market. And just like a carrot, you would typically peel it, although I don't peel my carrots personally. Burdock root skin is a little kind of rough. And so you would peel it and then you can grate it and chop it and saute it. uh, And it actually tastes great. What about broccoli, Rob? Yes, absolutely. Because it has a, that bitterness and yeah. the fiber. So a wonderful food for Love your it. gallbladder. Yeah, Fiber is so important. You know, just to reiterate, it enrobes excess fat and cholesterol and sugar in the gut and sweeps it out with the stool, but it also absorbs those toxins that were delivered in the bile. Right. right. And along with the bile, the fiber scrubs the intestinal villi clean of debris. And right. of course, that's going to increase our absorption of nutrients. You know, right, so picture fiber as like a bottle brush. hundred percent. Totally. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. like scraping the channel. I don't, that's yes. a, like a mental thing that I have about fiber. Well, let me add to that visual. So if vial is like the detergent, fiber is the scrub brush. Yes. Yes. Right. So that bile is helping to break up, right? Just like you see on the commercial, if you drop a dab of that dish soap into a greasy pan, right? That oil starts to break up. That's what the bile is doing in your gut, right? It's detergent that's breaking up the fats and the fiber is scrubbing everything clean. Yeah. Um, We also know that that fiber feeds your healthy microbes, Mm -hmm. right? It's rich in those prebiotic substances that promote very healthy, diverse Uh, intestinal uh, microbiota. And that of course, directly influences the health of your gut lining. These microbes are in direct communication with your immune cells, right? Mm -hmm. So all the advantages of fiber. So all the foods that you just named, they're helping to prevent gallbladder issues. Is there any kind of food or supplement or anything that has an effect on the quality of the bile itself? Or do mm. those foods, how do you improve the, or is, is that not a thing to improve the bile? No, no, that is right. Mm. Because we need the proper production of the bile salts and that is going to require certain amino acids. There is some supplementation that um, we can consider. Um, in fact, uh, choline is one of those. Um, it's an essential nutrient that's important for proper fat metabolism. And deficiencies of choline are associated at least with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, yeah. because um, that is one of those important 
nutrients for keeping proper biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I'll tell you the strategy from an herbal perspective is a, a little bit different. It is working on promoting the, let's say, chemistry of the bile, yes. but it's doing it a little bit differently than you might think. When it comes to herbs, we have uh, anti-inflammatories if your gallbladder is inflamed, yes. uh, antispasmodics, which are essentially relaxants if you have a gallbladder that is prone to spasming. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely want to incorporate things that are helpful for proper liver function. These are called hepatics. But the most important herbal category is what's called a cholagogue, right? And so a cholagogue is a substance that promotes bile production and flow, primarily bile flow, Mm. right? So the strategy that we use in herbalism is to decongest the liver and the gallbladder and to start to dissolve those stones. So think about like the river that's running over the river rock eventually erodes away that stone. Mm -hmm. We're going to promote bile flow. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, that's going to start to erode away at those gallstones. Does that make sense? Totally. Yep. Right. And so remember that those constituents once were dissolved within the bile, they precipitated out of the bile. We need to get that bile flowing so that we can re-dissolve them essentially. Yes. We want to you know, start with the food-based type suggestions because those are going to be the safest, okay. right? I do have to say, if we want to use cholagogs, it really is best to work with a practitioner. We want to proceed with caution because they will increase gallbladder contractions, okay. right? And so we want to be guided on which herbs to use, what are the right doses, because we want the best clinical results with minimal complications. Right, right. Um, The other thing, these cholagogues and liver cleansers, they're notorious for creating nausea, right? And we said that nausea is one of the key features of gallbladder disease. Yeah. So we need to kind of work up to, but not past a person's maximum tolerance for these things. Right. 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 But in terms of herbal strategy, those cholagogues are really important we have a couple that stand out and I'll just mention stone root is probably my favorite. This is called colonsonia and it's called stone root because it has a ridiculously hard root, but it also happens to help dissolve stones because it increases bile flow. Yeah. Right. So that would be one that I would definitely consider dandelion root. Remember just that common lawn weed, yep. the roots of that plant is a wonderful uh, liver remedy. It's cold and it's bitter, right? So it's kind of perfect for this hot, damp condition. Yep. It increases bile production and it increases uh, the release of bile. Okay. Remember we said from an Ayurvedic perspective, this is a condition of heat and congestion. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do with the cholagogs is to move that heat and congestion out of the body. Yeah. I also think of milk thistle seed. Yes. Uh, and milk thistle is just probably the most widely respected liver remedy, at least here in the US and Europe. Yes. And mostly we think of milk thistle to protect and repair liver tissue, right? especially if it's been damaged from, let's say, chemical exposure or hepatitis or accidental poisoning, but it does promote bile flow yeah. and it, it rebuilds liver tissue. So it's great for people with more serious liver concerns. It is slow acting, but it's very safe. It's more food-like. It's fine to use long-term. Typically, if we're using milk thistle seeds, those would be soaked all day, and then we'd consume those at night. 
that tends to be more effective as we're going through the stages of liver detoxification at night. So about two tablespoons would be a typical daily dose. You don't have to take it at night. You can even grind the seeds to a powder and sprinkle them on your food. Okay. They they taste pretty good too, which is nice. Does it come in a tea as well? Um, you know, you can get a milk thistle seed powder, which you can easily make into a tea, right? Just pour water. If it's a powder, you don't really need to do any preparation, right? It doesn't need to be simmered or even steeped. You're basically consuming the whole seed, right? Just in a powdered form. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. There is a semi-purified extract of the seeds that are used clinically. This is called silymarian, and that's been shown to increase that solubility of the bile. So there are some, uh, let's say, more modern preparations of milk thistle seed that may be more direct in terms of uh, making the biochemistry more thin, right? Thinning it out, making it more soluble. Right. Right. Peppermint is also worth noting. It's not a cholagog, but the menthol in peppermint actually works to chemically dissolve the stones. So this ties in a little bit more to your question, right? It helps to reduce the the stones themselves. Yeah. It helps to start to dissolve those stones, but it also helps to reduce a lot of the symptoms of gallbladder disease or gallstones, that chronic burping, the nausea that's so common with this condition. So you get a two for one uh, with peppermint symptom relief, as well as working on the actual manifestation of the gallstones in the gallbladder. And how is peppermint taken in tea or? You can do that. It's a mild remedy. And so clearly you're going to need to be consuming that regularly, but something that's a little bit more targeted, there are enteric coated peppermint oil capsules available. These are little soft gel capsules. It's about 0.2 milliliters of peppermint oil. That's these soft gel capsules. And the typical dose would be one to two of these three times a day, ideally between meals. Okay. We don't want to mix up the peppermint oil with digestion and all of our food that we consume. If you take it between meals, then you have that peppermint oil that gets absorbed into the bloodstream and it gets transported directly to the liver where it can start to go to work eventually in the gallbladder, helping to dissolve those stones. Okay. Yeah, and then we mentioned a lot of those digestive symptoms can be pretty insidious. A lot of times they're happening away from meals anyway. So you can um, get some symptomatic relief with that too. Mm, Interesting. Well, of course, when it comes to lifestyle, I'll be brief here. Safe, steady weight loss is really important. That's going to address a lot of those underlining metabolic factors that contribute to the stone formation in the first place. And of course, exercise is a really important component of that. Yeah, definitely. And one other side, low thyroid function can be a root cause of a sluggish gallbladder. So we see those with low uh, thyroid hormone, they're seven times more likely to have decreased bile flow. Oh, wow. So that's just a side. You might want to rule that out, double check that you are producing sufficient thyroid hormone because those thyroid hormones, they govern the rate at which all of your cells function, right? Including the, uh, the function of digestion and the gallbladder. Yeah, exactly. But Sherry, I know that you're very much into the subtle body. So I just want to end with one other little tidbit, which I think is quite interesting. When it comes to the subtle body, Chinese medicine associates the gallbladder with indecision. Oh, really? And 
Yes, indecision. Now, both traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda associate the liver with anger. Yeah. Right. So it might be, you know, just a helpful exercise to consider those two things. How much is indecision playing into my life? How much is anger shifting my perception of my experience? Right. right. Because working with those two emotions can be incredibly healing in terms of many of the subtle body effects that we know are influencing the physical body on a moment to moment basis. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's emotion always comes into every imbalance and disease. I mean, Mm. it's just a fact. And listening to this podcast, there's no end to the Mm. respect that I have for the human body. Mm. it's mind boggling. It is, it's incredible Mm. how smart and how it makes adjustments and how hard it works in this day and age when, you know, we just don't make it easy for our bodies. We really don't. It's true. And that's why we really have to take control over our health by first and foremost, looking at what is on our plate. What are the foods that we are choosing to consume? Just because they are easily available and uh, they're everywhere doesn't necessarily mean that they were designed with our ultimate health and longevity in mind, right? right? These things were designed for convenience and profit solely. And, you know, that's okay, but we have to choose to not participate in that. And there's plenty of simple foods that are close to nature that we can consume and feel really good doing it. Absolutely. So this is the perfect time. If you could please say how the listeners can get in touch with you. If anybody is having any kind of gallbladder issues, how can they contact you and work with you in an IRB? Absolutely. Just keep in mind for anyone listening, I'm more than happy to speak with anybody first, just to make sure that my services will meet their needs. You can uh, reach me through my website, which is just maryalicequinn.com. Uh, M-A-R-Y-A-L-I-C-E-Q-U-I-N-N.com. And um, one last thing, Sherry, are you familiar with uh, Louise Hay's work? No. So Louise Hay was a practitioner that was able to identify certain mental emotional patterns that led to physical diseases. And she associates gallstones with bitterness, which is interesting. And her primary tool was affirmation. And the affirmation that she gives for gallstones is there is joyous release of the past. Life is sweet. And so am I. Oh, I love that. Hmm. I love that. That is beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once again, this has been eye-opening to say the least. There were a lot of things today that I did not realize. And it was just very Mm. interesting because our gallbladder, just on the topic alone, how important our gallbladder is and our whole, you know, the liver and our digestive system, Mm. our our mental state, our food choices. It's just, just mind boggling sometimes. And I hope even if the listeners don't, you're not even having any, you know, gallbladder issues or anything like that, but just to contact you, to even hear about Ayurveda and open up to such a beautiful, beautiful practice and lifestyle is, 
I I encourage people to just open your mind to Ayurveda because it's really worth it. Mm. Well, thank you, Sherry. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to your audience. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for your time, Mary Alice. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you would like to experience healing or give the gift of healing to another, please go to my website, www.hamsaholistichealingandayurveda.com or email me at sherry at hamsaholistichealing.com or you can contact me on Facebook, Sherry Berjanski. I offer Ayurveda consultations, Reiki energy healings, reflexology and Ayurveda foot massage, tarot card readings, angel card readings, and much more. If you found this podcast helpful, please share an episode so that we can spread this wonderful wisdom of healing. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, take care. Namaste.